Thanks for coming. Uh, just by way of uh, announcements, just a few things I want to remind you guys also. Uh, to get announcements, several ways that you can do that. We uh, have them scrolling, as you see, before and after the service. Also, uh, if you are on our email list, you should be getting a weekly email update. If you're not on our email list and you'd like to be, you can sign up at the Welcome Center. Also, I want to let you know that there is a hard copy of the announcements. So everything that we send out and everything that we scroll uh, every week is updated. Uh, and this is at the Welcome Center as well. And so if you want a hard copy of the announcements that go out every week, that's at the Welcome Center on the flyer pamphlet holder thingy that looks really good. So uh, a few things to note, uh, things that are coming up. I want to let all of you guys know who are maybe college age, if you have someone, son, daughter, cousin, who is of the college young adult age that Shelly and I are hosting, uh, kind of that age group during the summertime. And so Thursdays at 730, uh, we get together at our house and we, uh, we do a Bible study, uh, we talk, we eat, it's good. We have a good time. And so if that's something that you are interested or you know someone who would be interested in that, we invite you to come to that. I want to let you know also um, that there is a kids ministry meeting on the 21st. And so if you are at all involved in children's ministry on the Sunday school level, you teach kids Sunday school or you help with kids church, I'd invite you to come to that. Uh, We're going to brainstorm and talk about the future of our children's ministry. So the 21st. Also, June 27th, uh, Sunday evening, we're going to begin our all services. Uh, Once again, we did two or three of them last year. They were really good. uh, Alternative worship experiences. Just something outside of the box, outside of the church building. Uh, A good time for fellowship and for food and for worship and for uh, hearing the word. It's just a good time. Yeah, it's, uh, it's different. And so I invite you to mark your calendars for the 27th. Is there anything else that anybody would like to share before we get started this morning? Any other announcements? Going once? Going twice? Okay, guess not. Well, let's go ahead and do this. We're going to uh, do things a little bit differently this morning. Sermon in two parts. And so kids, you're going to go to kids' church first. And so we're going to meet and greet. And then after that, head off to kids' church. You're going to come back for our worship service. And the conclusion of our book, The Song of Solomon, I've actually got some things to say to you, kids, as well. And so you guys are going to come back. So just so you know, that's how how things are going to be going this morning. So I'd invite you to go ahead and stand up greet one another. Thanks. All right. As you guys kind of finish up, feel free to uh, head back to your seats. And we're going to go ahead and dig in this morning. So kids, go ahead and head off to Kids Church. I think Trina is back there waiting. Uh, So you guys go ahead and feel free to do that. For the rest of you, as you're kind of getting ready, uh, pull out your Bibles. Uh, We're going to finish up our sermon series on the book of Song of Solomon. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Song of Solomon. Uh, Pretty well smack dab in the middle of your Bible. Um, It will be before Isaiah and after Ecclesiastes, right in the wisdom literature portion of your Bible. And turn with me to chapter 8. We have been on a, 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 uh, a journey uh, with Solomon and his uh, bride, if you will. And uh, just to remind us uh, where we have been and where we're going, uh, we have seen this couple attract. We've seen this couple date. We've seen this couple marry. We've seen their honeymoon night. We have seen this couple learn how to fight well, uh, to fight cleanly. Uh, we have seen them last week learn how to deepen their relationship in every aspect of their relationship. And this week, we are going to see the art of faithfulness as we conclude this wonderful little love poem that has much to teach us about relationships and love and marriage and dating. Uh, the, the art of faithfulness, chapter 5 
of uh, chapter 8 and verse, and verse 5, uh, the art of faithfulness. And so we will see uh, the ideal uh, for God's intent for relationships, for marriage. That is, uh, that a husband and wife will be faithful uh, for a lifetime towards the end. Again, we will see God's intent. Um, I want to begin with, uh, with a couple that most of us are pretty uh, familiar with, um, Richard and Lee Carlson. Uh, we all know that Richard passed away um, a few weeks ago and went to be with Jesus. And uh, we had a great ceremony for him. And it was a great celebration of his life and, and, uh, and of his death as well. And, and I just want to share with you just a few things that I've seen in my brief interaction with them. In particular, as I saw Richard and Lee interact with one another towards the end of uh, their life together as Richard was passing away. Uh, we're going to be talking about faithfulness, the art of longevity, the art of perseverance, if you will. How do you uh, make it to the end, if you will, with your spouse? And, and as I thought about that, I, I, it came to me that, man, I was able to personally see, and I think we collectively, uh, to some degree, depending upon how well you know originally, we were able to see this played out for us. Really well. It was such a privilege for me to minister to Rich and to Lee during the last days of his life. Um, and in particular, it was such a privilege for me to see Lee minister to Richard. I can't tell you how many times I, I talked with her over the phone or I was in person and, and just spending time with them that she told me what a privilege it was for her to serve Richard all the days of her life and what a privilege it was for her to be with him in their home until uh, his his dying day. And as Richard passed away to be with Jesus, um, Lee stood by him and she was with her family and she uh, hugged his neck and she stroked his face and she uh, whispered to him, I love you. And he passed away into eternity. And I thought to myself, in retrospect, as I was thinking about the art of faithfulness this morning, Man, what a great picture. You know, our culture, when we speak about love and faithfulness and what love means, I think we often get it so wrong. We highlight uh, what love is in movies and Hollywood tells us and culture and the magazine rack tells us what love is supposed to look like. But I tell you what love looks like. It, it looks like Lee Carlson stroking the face of her dying husband, whom she has been with for many, many years and faithful to for many, many years and love him until his death. That's what love, that's what love looks like. And so we're going to begin in chapter 8, verse 5, looking at the art of faithfulness. This morning uh, we end the Song of Solomon. And what I hope we're going to see in this first section is six characteristics of faithful love. And so if you have um, a notebook that we've provided for you or some, you know, write on uh, your Bible if you want, some pieces of paper, I'd invite you to jot these down. Uh, the six characteristics will be on top of the verses uh, that correspond to them. And so the first portion, six characteristics of faithful love. What does it look like for love to go from beginning to end? Again, God's ideal. So we're going to start in verse five and we're going to look at the first characteristic of faithful love, and that is it is providential. That is, it is seen by the couple as providence, as God's providence. The story, if you recall, picks up, I believe, where it left off last time. If you remember last week, uh, the couple was deepening in their love and relationship for one another. And the wife says, hey, let's get away from the castle. Let's get away from the city. Let's go and be together. And so I think the story picks up in verse 5 with them returning from their little rendezvous. And the people of the town speak in verse 5. And they say this, Who is that coming up 
from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved. And so the picture is of Solomon and his wife returning from their date, if you will, returning from their getaway in the wilderness. And she is leaning on him, maybe with her arm uh, around his, his waist or on his arm, if you will. Who is this, they say, and they see the couple returning home. And then as we continue on in verse 5, I think the camera, the scene kind of shifts uh, from a distance uh, to closer. and And the camera goes to their conversation, what they're talking about as they go home. And she continues uh, to speak to him. She speaks most often in this book. Uh, she begins the book. We're going to see that she ends the book. She's very active uh, verbally here in this book. And so we zoom in on their conversation, I think, as they're heading home. And she says this in verse 5. It's, it's kind of a cryptic text. I'll, I'll, I'll give you this up front. It's kind of hard to understand. She says this. Under the apple tree, I awakened you. Under the apple tree, I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Um, I'll be honest, I looked at all sorts of different options and I studied, and uh, this is a, a hard text to interpret. There are all sorts of opinions on what this means, but I'll tell you what I think it means. What I, what I think she's saying is that she was born to love him. What I think she's saying is that she awakened his love and it was God's providence that she would meet him and that his love for her would awaken. And the apple tree in ancient Israel was a picture of love. Uh, the olive tree in the scriptures is a picture of Israel as well as the fig tree. But in ancient Israel, a picture of the apple tree is, is, is a place of love. And so I think what she's saying is... is At the place of love, I awakened your love for me. And then she likens that love to being born, if you will, uh, to being birthed, that it was birthed. And I think what she's saying, again, it's a bit of a cryptic text, but I think what she's saying is that she feels like he was born to love her, that he was born for her, and that he was awakened by the very providence of God. And so I think the first characteristic of faithful love is that the couple sees their meeting, sees their coming together, sees their relationship as providential. It is God's desire for them to be married. And so I want to ask you spouses, if you see your marriage, if you see your coming together, your story as a couple, And if I were to ask you your story, every couple in here would have a a story to tell about how they got together. Do you see God's hand involved in that? Do you see that it was God's providence that you two would come together? I think that it's right that we see it that way. As I look at my marriage, I certainly see the hand of God in that. I was a single seminary student and poor and broke and I, I needed a good godly gracious wife. And God provided me with that in his providence. And I think Shelley would say the same. As we look at our story, we see the hand of God working in both of our lives to provide each other for one another. And so couples, do you see it this way? Do you see your marriage as something that is God intended? Is God designed? Because if you do, and I challenge you to begin to think this way about your marriage, I think it helps us to see that our marriage is greater than ourself. It's bigger than ourself. Yes, it's God's design for us to meet our needs for love and intimacy uh, that we have as human beings. But at the same time, I think God has a bigger purpose. God has a greater providential purpose for marriage. 
And that's his purpose for all of us as believers, to make us like Jesus, to grow us in our faith, to honor him above all things. I want to read a quick quote uh, by, by Gary Thomas. I've quoted him uh, again a little bit last week. I'll quote him again. Gary Thomas, in the book called Sacred Marriage, says this about God's providence and God's intent for marriage. What if God had, in, had an end in mind that went beyond our happiness? Our comfort and our desire to be infatuated and happy. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? Have you ever thought about that? Spouse, married people, single people who might one day be married. Have you ever thought about what God's ultimate intent for your marriage is? I would say that in God's providence, he brings you together to do more for him as a couple than you might be able to do individually. And his desire is, yes, that you be happy and comfortable and uh, in love with one another and your spouse. But his greater desire is that God uses your spouse as iron sharpens iron to make you holy in his providence. And so I think the first, the first characteristic of faithful love is that it's providential. Moving on to verse 6, I think the second characteristic of faithful love is that it is possessive. We're going to see some strong language starting in verse 6. And she desires this man. We see a wonderful picture of the power and the passion and the possessiveness of love. Read with me what she, what she says in verse 6 as she re- gives a, a request, a question, if you will, to Solomon. Verse 6, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. And what she's talking about here is a seal. Now, in those days, if you wanted to sign a contract, if you wanted to identify something uh, as, as your possession, that you owned it, you wouldn't sign a signature like we would. You wouldn't sign a contract like we do in, in today. What they would use is these things called seals. And what they essentially were was a, a stone, a pretty valuable stone. And on this stone would be carved a, a unique word, a unique image that would kind of be your mark, your image, if you will. And oftentimes, I think we see she's referring to where it's worn here. Oftentimes it would be worn around a necklace that would lay close to where? Close to your heart. Uh, It could be worn on something called a signet ring. And so there was a ring with a mark. Some, uh, uh, Some archaeologists say that they found some on a necklace that you would wear on your arm or on your wrist. And I think she's referring to that here. And she's saying, I want to be like a seal Close to your heart. I want to be like a seal that makes its impression upon you. And so what I think she's saying here is that she wants to be valued. These were valuable pieces of property. She says, I want to be valued by you. I want to be close to you, not just physically, but emotionally, I believe. She says, I want to be as close to your heart as that signet uh, pendant necklace, if you will. And she says, I want... To be your possession. I am possessive of you. And so husbands, I want to ask you this specifically. Does your wife feel... Uh, well, let's, let me say this. I can guarantee you that your wife feels like this. That she is possessive of you. That she could reiterate this to you. That she wants to be valued by you above anything else. And that she wants to be close to you physically and emotionally. She wants to know you. She wants to know who you are, what you think, what you feel, what you're like. She wants to get into your heart. She feels like this. 
gentleman. And so I want to ask you, does she feel as close to you as she would like? And so this might be a dangerous question, gentlemen, but I want to ask this on the way home tonight as you're going to bed. Ask her if, if she feels as close to you as she would like. If she, if she has you like she would like to have you. And if listen to her. <laughs> Don't make excuses. Listen to her. Take it to heart. And, and my guess is that if she says no... My guess is that if she says, no, I don't feel as close to you as I would like, emotionally or verbally, it's because you're not opening up to her emotionally and, and verbally like you should. That, typically speaking, is how women love. That's how they want to be loved, generally speaking. She wants to know you. And so, gentlemen, when she asks you how your day went, don't just tell her, fine. What she wants to know is how your day went, what you did, what you ate for lunch, what clients you talked to, how your boss treated you. She wants to know that because she wants to know you. And when she asks you how you're feeling, okay, guys, this is not our realm. We're not touchy-feely. I grant us that. But the best of your capabilities, tell her how you feel. Use words like sad, disappointed, frustrated, whatever. Choose your adjectives. Convey to her, work on sharing with her. And when she asks you what you're thinking, tell her what you're thinking. Tell her what is running through that mind of yours. Even though it may be insignificant to you, it may be stupid. Uh, this is a bit of an, an aside, but Shelley and I are reading a book called Men Are Like Spaghetti. And No, no. Women are like spaghetti and men are like waffles. And the premise of the whole book, which we learned in our retreat, is that women, generally speaking, their mind works like spaghetti. Uh, everything just connects. Everything touches. And so everything is related to everything else. But men, generally speaking, have little boxes in our minds like waffles. And they don't connect. They don't touch. And we hang out in one particular box. And so the point of this ramble is, if you're in your nothing box, and literally you're thinking about nothing, that's okay. Say, I'm vegging out. <laughs> I'm literally thinking about nothing. But then try to move to a something box so you can communicate with her. But if you're thinking about something, if you're in your work box or your fishing box or your sports box, well, just tell her. The point of my rant is this. She is possessive of you and she wants to know you. It's providential. It's possessive. Moving on to verse 6, she continues and she gives him a reason now. She says, I want to know you. I want to be possessive of you. And here's the reason why. Verse 6, part B. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy, synonymous, uh, a parallel here with love, holy Jealous love is fierce as the grave, or Sheol, your translation might say, the place of the dead, the abode of the dead. And so she's talking about her love, her jealous love. Is, is it right for a, a woman or a husband to be jealously in love with their spouse? Absolutely. We see in the Old Testament that God says he is a jealous God, and it's right for him to be jealous. He desires our praise and our worship and our love exclusively because he can. And when you're married, that's how your spouse feels. You desire them exclusively, jealously. And so the point here, I think, is, is number three. The third characteristic is that it's permanent. It's providential, it's possessive, and that it's meant to be permanent. Notice the image. She likens this jealous love with death and Sheol, uh, the place of the dead. 
something that I think we all know about death, about Sheol, is that it is permanent. Once we die, we die. And of course, we, I know there's a resurrection of the dead. I, I know those things. But for the Hebrew mind at this point, death is it's pretty, pretty permanent. You know, death does not let, let go of its, of, its, of its dead. It's intended to be permanent. And I think what she's saying is that love in a marriage relationship is meant to be that way. It's meant to be as permanent in this life as death and Sheol is as bringing people into the next life. You see what I'm saying? It's meant to be permanent. I heard a story uh, from a preacher the other day who was preaching on this text, and it's a pretty cool story. He was telling a story about this couple in uh, in their church that had been married for a very long time, and he overheard this 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 the wife and the couple uh, sharing with some other couples about the day that they got engaged, and he, and the wife was so proud, and it was fresh on her mind, and she was sharing about the engagement story and the details and how he did it and all of those things, you know, engagement stories, you know. She told the details of it all. But then what kind of caught his ear, what kind of caused him to perk up was the detail that she then shared. And the pastor conveyed that after talking about the engagement story, she told about what they did after they got engaged. After we got engaged, we uh, called all of our friends and our family and we're on the phone. You know, that's what we were doing. But what this couple did. It's awesome. They went to the county or the place uh, in their town, uh, the graveside, the, 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 the graveyard. And there on the day that they were engaged, they purchased their lots together, side by side. Because it was their intent as they began their marriage relationship that it would be until death. What a great picture, I think, of God's ideal for the permanence of marriage. And so couples, I want to challenge you in this, in this regard. I think what... What this doesn't mean is that we simply stick with our spouse until they die. It does mean that, but it also means that we're not like counting down the days until, you know, lightning comes to strike our spouse. You know, that's not what it means. It's not like, okay, yeah, I know it's going to come sometime. That's, the intent is that not only is it for a lifetime permanent, but the intent is that you continue to grow, that you continue to, to get to know one another and fall in love deeper and deeper and deeper, to not be stagnant in your relationship. It's providential, it's possessive, it's permanent. Number four, it's produced by God. <clears throat> it's produced by God. Verse six, she continues on and she likens this love. Notice the image that she, she used. She said, love is like death, it's like the grave. And then she talks about love, this kind of love as a fire that never goes out, as a fire that is not extinguished, kind of like maybe the Olympic torch that never goes out during the, during the duration of the games. And she says, this kind of love that I have for you is produced by God himself. She calls it the flame of the Lord. Notice, <clears throat> its flashes, referring to love, its flashes are flashes of fire. So like a fire that flashes upward. The very flame, notice these words, of the Lord. Flames of the Lord. And so what she's saying is that God is the source, that God is the one producing this kind of love within her, these kind of qualities in her. And so spouses, how do we know, how do we know, and this is true of any relationship, but I want to focus on marriage. How do we know if the love that we are showing to our spouse 
is produced by the Lord. How do we know if our love are flames of fire, the very flames of the Lord? How do we know if we're loving in a godly, biblical way? Or how do we know if we're loving in an unbiblical, worldly, self-centered kind of way? How do we know? Because people define love all sorts of ways. And you may think that you're loving your spouse, but you may be loving yourself. So how do we know? Flip with me to the New Testament, and we'll jump back to the Song of Solomon. Flip with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. This is a very familiar passage to most of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is where we're going to land. Most of us have heard this once or twice, if not many times in our life. Paul speaks about love. What is love? And he defines the characteristics of what I would call a God-produced Love. And so how do you know if your love is produced by God? Well, Paul tells us some characteristics of love. And so the reason, the way you will know if your love is produced by God is put your name in the blank. Love is patient. Put your name in the blank. Trey is patient. Do that in your minds and then evaluate. Is this me? Can I honestly say that I am these things? When you go home, ask your spouse, say, Shelly is patient. And and ask your spouse, is that true of me? Is this the kind of love that I show to you? And so I'll read it with myself. Verse 4. Trey is patient and kind. Uh, Trey does not envy or boast. Trey is not arrogant or rude. Trey does not insist on his own way. Trey is not irritable or resentful. Trey does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Trey bears or endures all things. Trey believes all things. Trey hopes all things. Trey endures all things. And so that's how you know if your love is produced of God. If that is true of you, then you know, like this woman, that your flames, your love, is the very flame of the Lord. And so we've seen that a faithful love, it's providential, it's possessive, it's permanent, it's produced by God. Number five, it's persevering. That is, it it just sticks with it. That's what we mean by perseverance. Verse seven, again, she's used this image of a flame. Love is like a flame, like a big fire. And then she says this. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it out. Remember, if if their love is like a flaming fire that endures, what she says is that whatever waves, whatever water, whatever floods might come into your relationship, the flame of our love will not go out. You can dump a gallon of water on it. It will not go out. You can stick the torch in the ocean, and it won't go out. There might be a flood in your house, but your flame will not go out. perseveres. You stick with it. How many of you have ever had the joyful experience of, and maybe as a younger child, maybe uh, uh, for some of us younger folks, I don't think these were around, you know, many, many years ago, but how many of you have had an experience to where you go and someone has a birthday cake for you and they're candles and they light the candles and they sing happy birthday to you and then you go to blow the candles out and you make a wish and you blow them out and lo and behold, they pop back up. Do you know what I'm talking about? Trick candles? I don't know what they're called. That's what we call them. Trick candles. You blow them, and then they reappear. And you blow on them, and they reappear. Shelly shared with me just last night that she had a birthday party in third or fourth grade, and her parents pulled that little prank, and she said, I guess I didn't get my wish that year because I couldn't blow them out. I think that's the image of persevering love. No matter what winds or floods may come, you simply stick 
with it. And so for those of you who have been married five years or 50 years, you know what I mean. There are floods that come into our life. There are floods that come into marriage that can, if we allow them, drown out the flame of our marriage. Maybe it's a difficult time uh, financially. Maybe it's a time without a job. Maybe it's, it's a season of enduring sorrow. Maybe the loss of a loved one or a friend. Uh, maybe it's, it's, a, it's long hours at work. Or maybe it's having a child or multiple children that can be a waters that could possibly quench that. Maybe it's just a season of conflict where you're at each other for a period of time. All of these things can be floods in marriage. And what she says is that faithful love just doesn't give up. Number six, it's also priceless. Notice what she says in verse seven. She ends this little section by saying love is priceless. It can't be bought. It can't be purchased. It can only be given. And that seems very natural to us. Love cannot, you can't buy it. You can only just give it. It's natural. It has to be given. Notice what she says. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. What she's saying is, is if someone comes up to, to you and says, I will give you all of my possessions if you simply love me. Maybe there is a man who's courting a wife, a potential wife, and he says, I'm rich, I'm filthy rich, and it will be all yours if you just choose to like me and love me. What this text is saying is that, is that that woman should say, you're an idiot, go away. Uh, despised. He would be utterly despised because we know that love at its essence is only given. It's priceless. And so, speaking again to spouses, I think it's applicable in other relationships. But in the context of marriage, I think there are subtle ways that we in marriage can make our spouse pay for or earn our love instead of freely, unconditionally giving it to them. And so here are a couple ways. Uh, wives, will start with you. Um, if he remembers the trash... I will love him. If he comes home on time, like I expect him to, I will love him. If he has my honeydew list at the end of the weekend, I will love him. If he pays the bills on time, I will love him. Guys, if her words are respectful, if she respects me, then I will, I will love her. If my clothes are washed on time, I'll love her. If she meets my needs, I will love her. I think we can, in subtle ways, <clears throat> put a price tag on our love for our spouse. And what she's saying here is that it's priceless. It can't be bought. It can only be given. We're, we're going to transition here. and We're going to sing songs of worship. We're going to sing songs to God. And we're going to sing songs about God's faithfulness. We've seen this couple and the ideal uh, that she sets forth of faithfulness. But what we see is that God is the faithful one. That Jesus Christ is the faithful one. And if we look at all of these characteristics of faithful love, I think we see them in God and exhibited in Jesus Christ. God's love is providential. He's sovereign over his love, and he chooses to love us. God's love is possessive. In the Old Testament, God says, I am jealous for you. God's love is permanent. It endures forever. It's produced by God. Okay, well done. God is love and he produces God, uh, love. It's persevering that through the ups and the downs, through the floods of life, God's love and his faithfulness endures. Finally, it's priceless. We can't pay God to love us. He loves us at the price of the life and burial and death and resurrection of his son. That was the price that it took for God to love us in Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to invite our worship team now to come and to lead us in songs of worship. And we're going to worship God and we're going to worship Jesus.
And our kids are going to hopefully come back here in a few minutes. And we're going to sing about God's love and God's faithfulness. And so as they come forward, I'd invite you to, uh, to pray with me. Father, we ask that you would uh, calm our hearts and our minds. Father, we ask that you would help us to apply uh, these principles to all of our relationships, but especially to our marriages. Father, that we would be faithful, loving, unconditional uh, towards uh, to the end. And Father, we're grateful that, <clears throat> that our human relationships only are a, a vague mirror, a dim mirror that point us towards your unchanging love and faithfulness in our life. And we know uh, that whatever state we're in, whether we're married, whether we're not, whether we're single, whether we're dating, whether we have been married, whatever relationship we may or may not be in, that a relationship with you is what we are intended for. And a relationship with you through your son, through faith in his grace on the cross, this satisfies our deepest longing for relationship. And it's sufficient. So we praise you for it now. In Jesus' name. Now it's my turn to pray. Father, we're grateful for the ancient words that you've preserved for us through scripture. Father, I'm particularly grateful for these ancient words that you speak to us in every area of life, even in relationships, even in our marriage, even in our sexuality, even in our dating, that you have ancient words that speak to us. We're grateful for that. Father, I pray now as we uh, prepare our offerings and that which you have freely given, I pray that we would freely give. God, you are generous to us and we want to be generous to you. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. At this point, you guys can be seated. We're going to take our offer. Serious. Thanks. At this point, before we uh, finish off uh, the book of Psalm Solomon, we're going to do an interview. And so we have uh, I've asked Cal and Kira Lee Kaufman to come uh, share briefly with us a little bit from their life. So guys, that's your cue. Come on up. And uh, they're going to have a seat on our couch here. And uh, um, it's my understanding, guys, that you guys just had a, an anniversary. Is that correct? Uh, here I am asking questions and they're not, you know. I have the mic. Come on up. Welcome. Feel free to have a seat. Thanks. All right. Feel free to grab that mic. It should be on. So, here we go. You guys have recently had uh, an anniversary, is that correct? When was that? June the 6th. Okay. So, very recently. And uh, that will be how many years for you guys? 62. Thank you. Appreciate that. 62 years. All right. So, it's uh, very fitting that I guess I... Uh, ask you guys about uh, the art of faithfulness. So just a couple questions that I want to hear from your experience uh, from a, a newly wed like myself. Uh, we look at you guys and uh, we want to know um, how you do it. And so here's some questions. First question, what are, uh, what are some of the biggest challenges that you faced in your marriage and how have you uh, remained faithful through them? Well, we've had uh, a lot of challenges in life. And some of them were pretty hard to face, and, but we seem to get through them some way. But I'll, I'll let Curly pick us up. Probably the first big challenge we had was when we had our very special son. And um, we thought, you know, it was tough. It was tough on our marriage, and... 
we thought, oh, I don't know, do we want to go ahead and have more children, or what do we, you know, it was rough. And um, we thought, we'll never be happy anymore. I mean, this is, you know, this is rough. Not realizing that the Lord had blessings for us in the future. I mean, this that we thought was so tough was going to be a blessing. And uh, as the years went by, uh, we did decide we, we wanted to have more children. And you know, he blessed us so much. We are so grateful and so thankful that uh, we have him and not only we are blessed, but our children are blessed. They are so so thankful, and our grandchildren, and there are many others, I'm sure, are blessed. So that that was our first challenge, and I'll let Cal tell us any other challenges. <laughs> Well, actually, we, we faced many challenges in life, but probably that was the biggest challenge in, in our life was our kids to, to uh, decide whether we should have a bigger family, but, but we did, and, and the Lord blessed it. And, uh, but the challenge, you know, on, on raising your kids, as you all know, there's a time you've got to say no, and there's a, there's a time you can say that's okay. But uh, that was probably our biggest challenge. Right. Plus a lot of others. <laughs> so uh, I guess kind of final question here. If you could give us any hints to those of us who are still on the road, like you are, still on the path, but just a little bit behind you, um, hints to having just a, a long-lasting, healthy marriage. Have you got any ideas, any hints for us? What does that look like? What are some of the elements that have allowed you guys to do that? I'll talk first there. Uh, <laughs> When we got when we were getting married, a friend told me. He said, uh, he said, we made a decision in our life. He said that my wife would make all the small decisions, and I could make, and he was going to make all the big decisions. And he said, so far, he said, I haven't had to make one decision. He said, <laughs> so it's all worked out fine and well. And we kind of adopted that same thing, you know, just. Uh, but, but we make decisions together, and they don't always agree, but somewhere they work out. Um, one thing I, I guess we've learned, too, is that um, when we have disagreements, um, we try to settle them. Well, at first we didn't, and it was awful, but we'd go to bed, and we'd be upset with each other. And we'd toss and turn all night long, you know, if we didn't get it settled. So I would advise uh, you young couples, and especially you guys that are engaged, that you, um, you just decide that you're going to do that, that you're going to settle these things quickly and apologize and make up because it's miserable to spend the night angry at one another and not get you sleep. So that's, that's one of the things that I remember and that uh, we didn't do uh, at first when we were 
um, first married and even later on. And so that's... Great. Thank you very much. That sounds very biblical. Sounds like Ephesians, right? Don't let the sun go down to your anger. Thus give the devil a foothold. So, great advice. Would you guys give them a round of applause? Thank you so much for coming up here and doing that, sharing with us. Very much appreciate that, guys. All right. Thank you, Shelly. All right, we're going to wrap this up, so hang with me here. Turn with me in your Bibles, chapter 8, verse 8 through 14. Uh, We have seen uh, faithful love. We're going to wrap this book up, how love begins and how love ends. What we're going to see is this uh, this is kind of like a flashback, starting in verse 8. We're going to flash back to how this couple met. Uh, We don't... Uh, from the very beginning, we don't know how they met, but we're going to see how this couple met. And we're going to see uh, why that this woman was uh, pure and holy and godly. Why was she like that? We're going to take a look back, and then we're going to take a look forward to the present of day, to the book ending with this couple still in love. And so, first of all, how love began, or how love begins, starting in verse 8, and the brothers speak. Uh, the brothers have not spoken. Remember uh, back in chapter 1 when she said, uh, the brothers, my brothers, were angry at me. They have made me work in the vineyard, but I could not take care of my own vineyard. We don't know where her father was. Pr- presumably she, uh, he is dead. And so the brothers are acting in place of him. And initially she said, they're so mean. They make me work. I couldn't take care of myself. I had to work in their vineyard. And we're going to find out how God providentially arranged this for her being humble and godly and submissive to authority, led her to her husband. Verse 8, the brothers speak. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts, meaning she's young. She's not uh, adolescent yet. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? And so they ask this question to themselves. We have a young Sister, and one day she's going to grow up and the guys are going to be attracted to her. What are we going to do when the guys come knocking on our door? How are we going to know if she's mature enough to handle a relationship? How are we going to know if she's mature enough to get married? And so husbands, fathers, mothers, I'm sure you have all asked this question at some point, especially if you have a daughter. How do I know when they're ready to begin having a relationship? How do I know if this is the right guy when he comes knocking? How do I know if she's ready? Well, they answer that question for us this morning in verse 9. If she is a wall, speaking about her sexuality, if she is a wall, then what? We will build on her a battlement of silver. This may mean that they will reward her. It may mean that they'll give her a dowry. Not exactly sure, but it's a positive thing. If she's a wall, we're going to build on her an embattlement of silver, but contrasting a wall, if she is a door. Now, there's a big difference between a wall and a door. You can't really get through a wall very easily, but doors open and shut, open and shut. And so he, they say, but if she's a door, then notice what they're going to do. We will enclose her with boards of cedar. What they're saying is if she is not a wall, but if she's a door, we're going to shut the front door and we're going to barricade her in the house. That's what they're saying. And so... We, we get the answer. If, if, if males come, so to speak, to attack her purity and she is a wall, 
we're going to reward her. But if she's a door, we will restrain her. We will not give her opportunities. We will restrain her from further promiscuity. The, the term here, notice at the end of verse 9, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. This is a term used in the Old Testament for barricading a city door to prevent enemies from coming in. Serious stuff. I remember growing up in South Texas. It's a hurricane land. And so we, about every year, got a hurricane threat. And on the real serious hurricane threats, what we would do is my dad had plywood boards and we would board up all of our windows, all of our doors in the exact same shape. And we did it. Maybe about once a year, uh, because we didn't want the hurricane-forced winds to do damage to our house. And they're saying, we're going to barricade this girl in. But notice what she says. In verse 10, she speaks, and she says that she was a wall. She says, I wasn't a door, open and shut, open and shut. I was a wall. And as a result, this is important, especially for you young folks, kids, teenagers, Listen, this is important. She says, I was a wall, and because of that, then I was ready to meet my husband. Then I was ready to meet Solomon. Notice what she says in verse 10. I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. They were like defenses. No one got near them. Then, then, then I was, in his eyes, Solomon's eyes as one who finds peace. That is, he saw me and it was like peace. It was good. It was right. And this is a play on words, by the way, because peace, uh, shalom, is very much like Solomon, shalom. And so this is a play on words here. I became in his eyes uh, like one who finds Solomon. And so the point is this. That's how you know when you're ready to start dating. That's how you know when you're ready to engage in a serious relationship that is on the trajectory towards marriage. When you are mature enough as a young person, teenager, adult, uh, you know, adolescent, that's how you know when you're ready to begin. And I have met people uh, in, my, in my lifetime uh, who, are teena- who are teenagers, who are college students, who are 40-year-old people who are not ready to, to date. I've met adult guys and gals who shouldn't be dating, who shouldn't be in a relationship because they're not ready. They're not mature enough to be, according to this. And so, applications. Parents, this speaks tremendously to us. This speaks tremendously to us. Grandparents, if you have a part to play in the life of your grandkids, this speaks to you too. First of all, parents, you need to know as a parent if your kid is a wall or a door. Are you with me? You need to know as they're growing up, especially as they hit puberty and teenage years, you need to know where they are spiritually. You need to know if they're a door or a wall. Because if they are a wall, if they're mature, if they know Jesus Christ, if they're growing in their faith, if they're committed to holiness, then you give them responsibility. You let them go places. You give them a cell phone and send them out. You you give them more freedom. That's what they're saying. But if they are a door and you know that they are a door, they're immature, they can't handle dating, they can't handle the pressures, then what do you do? You barricade your doors. Not literally, uh, although you could. (laughs) That would work. You barricade their doors. You set boundaries on them. When they're going out, when they come in, who they're with, do you know where where they're at? Can they date? At what age? Can they date that person? Can they date at all? 
You set boundaries of them. Do you see where I'm getting this from the text? You have to know if your kid is a door or a wall. And ultimately, it's your responsibility as a parent to do everything that you can to protect the garden. Remember that image from a couple weeks ago. The, the garden, the sexuality of your kid. It's their garden, but you are the gardener. You're the gardener. Do a good job of it. There was a... Uh, there's a man in a church that I used to go to, and his name was John Rose. You know John Rose. Great guy, godly man, had three daughters. He loves his daughters. And he's a manly man, but he is so tender and sweet to his daughters. And he was sharing this with the guys at youth group, probably to scare them. But I think he was being honest. He told a story when his oldest daughter began to date. I think she was, I don't know, 17. She was older, 17, 18. And he made this, this, uh, his daughter bring the guy to the house to meet him before they went on the date. You know, yeah, you know what I'm talking about here. Uh, and, and he gave him the talk. And he just said, I, I love my daughter. She's precious to me. Um, she trusts you, so I trust you. But listen, if you hurt her in any way, shape, or form, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and I don't think he was kidding. <laughs> right? I don't think he was kidding. I kind of hope he was, because that's really not the Christian thing to do. But, he, but, but you see the point. He is trying to protect the garden of his daughters. Number two, parents, we need to teach our kids early about sexuality. We, especially as Christian parents, we think, oh man, they're, they're 17, they're 18, maybe now it's time. Good heavens. They have heard things in the classroom, on TV, on the internet with their friends that you have no idea that they're talking about. They have been exposed to this kind of stuff for years. And you have lost the opportunity to speak what God has to say into their life. And so talk to them early. I don't know how early. That's up to you as a parent. I'm not going to put a, a, an age on it. An interesting stat, though. Uh, a recent statistic says that on average... Young boys, young adolescent boys, experience their first pornography online. What age? Any guesses? What age? Eleven. Age eleven. And so if they are going to have influences at such an early age, we must be preemptive. Talk to your kids. Uh, Another helpful piece of advice, don't just have the talk. You know what I mean? Like the awkward talk, and you kind of speak, and they're like... You know, it's over. And, and, and so and, and don't just have the talk. And then, you know, in 15 years when they're 25, say, hey, how did that go? Did it work for you? You know, have talks. You see what I'm saying? Periodically throughout their life. Check up with them. Don't just have the talk. Have talks. Number three, practical advice from Mark Driscoll. Uh, Mark Driscoll preaches an excellent sermon on this, and he talks about how to raise a daughter. I don't have a daughter, and I've, I've only been a parent a year and a half, so I don't have helpful advice on this, but he does. So four things that he says. How do you raise daughters? Number one, deposit in their trust account. And this goes for guys, too. Uh, deposit in their trust account. Spend time with them, talk with them, have fun with them, listen to them, invest in them so that when they're a teenager and they think you're horrible and they don't ever want to be seen with you when you can have then an opportunity because you've built up the trust bank that they might actually listen to you when you talk to them about that boy or that girl build up the trust account number two he says don't leave her craving for male affection and attention we've seen this a hundred times over girls who don't have physical and emotional affection and love and hugs and appropriate kisses and touching and admiration and praise those girls will seek it elsewhere most uh, most likely from guys who have other things on their 
their mind. And so do that. Number three, train her to be attractive but not seductive. This is for the moms. Moms, you have to model this. It's fine for your daughter to be attractive but not seductive. And so that challenges you to look at your wardrobe. Are you dressing seductively or are you dressing attractively? Because she's going to model herself after you. Ask your husband, am I I, I attractively dressing or seductively? And if you're like me, I'll probably say, oh, just attractive. You're not seductive. You know, Uh, but guys, including myself, be honest. We have to be honest here for the sake of our girls. Number four. Be the kind of man that you want your daughter to be. And that goes for the wives, too. But husbands, uh, dads, she is going to think that what you are is normative. And that's what she's going to pursue. And so if you are not a great dad and husband, then she's going to think that that's normal. And if you don't want her to marry someone like you, then change. Here we go. Verses 11 and 12, and we're going to wrap up. We're going to see in verses 11 and 12 uh, how they met. Verse 11. Solomon had a vineyard. Where did they, where, where did she work? She worked in the vineyards, her brother's vineyards. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon. Uh, he let out, that is least, if you will, he let out the vineyard to keepers. And who might the keepers be? Her brothers. And so the picture is coming together. Her brothers uh, leased these vineyards. She was working in it. Solomon owned it because he was king. And that's how God providentially brought them together, I believe. Each one, she says, each one of these tenants was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. So her brothers paid Solomon a thousand pieces of silver. And then she says in verse 12, she speaks of herself. She speaks of her life, if you will, as a vineyard. Verse 12, my vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon... Back to the present time. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand. And so what she's saying is, I don't have to pay you money for a physical vineyard. Myself, my love, my life, this vineyard, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it all to you. And then notice what she says. Kids, children, teenagers, watch this. And the keepers of the fruit, 200. Who are the keepers of the fruit? Here she's referring to the fruit of her body, of herself. And who, again, was the keepers? Well, as the brothers, because the father is gone. And so I think here she's saying, I appreciate my brothers. I thank them for what they have done, because they made me work, they made me be submissive, and eventually I found my husband. But they made me be a wall and not a door. Teenagers, preteeners, we're almost done. You may not like what your parents do. You probably don't most of the time. Um, I was one, oh, not too long ago. How old am I? 30? I don't know. 15 years ago, I was there. God, that sounds like a long time in your ears, doesn't it? Listen, it's not that long. And kids, we don't like it. We think, man, they're being harsh. Man, they're setting boundaries. Man, I hate what they're doing. I hate that you don't let me date. I hate that you don't let me go to that party. I hate that you don't let me hang out with these people. I hate that you give me a curfew. All of these things. But listen, one day you will be like this woman. And you will say to your mom and your dad, thanks for tending my vineyard. Thanks for being a gardener to my garden. And I've seen a wedding of one of my friends to where the, the guy and the girl, and they maintain purity throughout their relationship, and they did it right by God's grace. And in their wedding, they turned and they thanked their mom and dad for what they did, for the boundaries that they set. It was a beautiful thing. And so one day, that's what I want for you. 
You will thank them one day. Verse 13 to 14, how love ends. Solomon, the, the picture that we get, love, they still love one another. Solomon's in the field working. He says, let me hear your voice, my love. And she says, hurry home. Verse 13, oh, you who dwell in the gardens, referring to his wife, with companions, that is the, my companions, my buddies, my companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. He says, I want to hear you call to me. And she does in response to in this wonderful book, verse 14, If we have it. Do we have it? No? Okay, I'll read it. Verse 14 says this. Make haste, my beloved. She's speaking. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag, a stud, on the mountains of spices. And the book ends with love, just like it began. We're going to close this way. Um, Many of us, from time to time, in any relationship we're in, not just romantic, in any relationship... Whatever relationship we're in, if we don't have our vertical relationship right, if we are not right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, if we're not relying on him for joy and peace and meaning and purpose in life, then all of our other relationships, horizontal relationships, are going to be skewed. They're not going to be right. We're going to not love people, but we're going to use people. And that's true in a marriage, in a friendship, in any kind of a relationship. And so maybe you're struggling uh, horizontally with your spouse, with a friend. Um, Maybe it's because you're struggling vertically. One quote, and we're done. Gary Thomas, again, in his book, Sacred Marriage, says this. What insight. But most of us crave what we want deep down. But most of us crave more than anything else. What most of us crave more than anything else is to be intimately close to the God who made us. That's what we want. If that relationship is right, we don't make such, listen, we won't make such severe demands on our marriage. Asking each other, expecting each other to compensate for spiritual Emptiness. And so I want to conclude by saying, are you compensating this morning for spiritual emptiness in a marriage, in a friendship, in a dating relationship, in an engagement, in a friendship? Are you compensating for spiritual emptiness because you are not right, because you are not intimately close to the God who made you? I want to let you know that you can be, if you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have not been born again, if you are not made new, personally trust in what Jesus has done, his perfect life, his substitutionary death for your sins and my sins on the cross, his resurrection, and personally place your faith in Jesus and been been, uh, made right and made new and find contentment and joy in this closeness that we have with God. If you've not experienced that, that may be the very, the only thing that you need to do to make your marriage right, to make your friendships right, to make your engagement right. Maybe that's what you need to do this morning, and so I invite you to do it. We're going to pray, we're going to sing one more song, and we're going to be done. So guys, come on up. Father, thank you for this lovely book. Thank you for the truth of it. Thank you that it touches so much of our life. Father, I pray for our young children, our teenagers. God, that they would come to know you through faith in Jesus, and it would be a living faith, and they would be a wall and not an open door. Father, I pray for parents, uh, for those of us who are parenting kids, that we would teach uh, our kids that their sexuality is a garden, and that it's good and holy and right, and to be preserved for their spouses, so that they may eat one day of the choicest of fruits. May we be good gardeners to their garden. We ask it in Jesus' name.